So the story so far, we're talking about Easter, right? So we're in Easter season. Um, coming in Easter season is always an adventure because I have to jump into Easter sermons. Um, and, and so um, having three weeks between now and Easter, um, any good theologian is going to say, if you've got three, you need to talk about the Trinity. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the next three weeks. We're going to talk about the role of the Father, the role of the Spirit, and then the role of the Son in the Easter um, event. And so in order to get there, we have to give you the story so far. And the story so far is this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created man at the end of that creation event. He created man and he placed man in a garden. He gave man woman and man and woman lived in that garden in peace and unity and perfect relationship with God for an undefined amount of time. Could have been uh, days, weeks, months, or years until their their curiosity got the better of them and they decided to choose the things that weren't of God. You see, they had one rule in the garden and it was don't eat from the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And as long as you don't eat from that tree, everything else is okay. Whatever else you want to do. And so I imagine that they stayed in the garden for a good long time until they got bored, until they thought they'd tried everything. And they said, you know what, there's only one thing left. And then the, the serpent comes in and he tempts them. He says, y'all should try that. If you eat the fruit, you'll be like God, knowing the difference between right and wrong. And their, uh, their, their selfishness and their desire and their curiosity got the better of them. And they ate the fruit. They introduced to the world this concept of sin. Sin is the idea that if you're going on the path that God has set for you, sin is the idea of taking a detour, of stepping off the path, of choosing your own thing. It's telling God, I know the plan that you have for me, but I prefer my own way. I know what it is that you want for me, but I prefer to do it myself. Unless we blame Adam and Eve too much, um, all of us have since that moment chosen that same choice. All of us have had that same moment where we said, I can do what God wants me to do, or I can do my own thing, and every single person in this room, in this town, and in this world has chosen my own thing. And so we broke the world. We changed it. The world went from being a perfectly hospitable place where rain fell when it needed to and where sun shined when it needed to and where plants grew where they were supposed to and weeds didn't grow where they weren't supposed to and everything worked the way it was supposed to work to this chaotic and mad world we live in. And you only have to pick up a newspaper to quickly realize how broken our world is. Every month, it seems, we have a school shooting. I heard just... Uh, just Maybe yesterday I was listening to the news here and on the base some guy shot his girlfriend for stupid, right? I mean, it doesn't matter what it was, it was stupid. And, and we just have these, these people who, who hurt each other and, and, we, and, we, and we, we injure each other and we do it with guns, but we also do it with our words and we do it with our actions. We don't love each other the way that we're supposed to. And God says, you know, if you just love God and love each other, you'll get this whole thing figured out. But instead we're like, you know what, I'm just going to love myself. And I'll go from there. And so we participate in this broken world. And not only do we participate in it, but every time we sin, we break it a little bit more. God, knowing that that's the world that humans are creating, and knowing that he wants to have a relationship with us, sets out from that very day the world was broken, a plan by which the world will be fixed, by which things will be restored by which the world will be reborn and, and made new, where we can have a restoration with our relationship with God. 
And so today we're going to talk about two things. We're going to talk about our Father, who's a promise maker. And then we're going to talk about uh, omniscience, which is required to keep that promise. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into it. God, thank you for bringing us here today and giving us a chance to talk about your word. God, I pray that we would be a church that loves your word, that we would be a church that cherishes every word that you've given us in this letter called the Bible. God, I pray that as we read these words, they would change our lives. I pray that as we study what you've said to us, we would be made new, that we would be recreated into the image of Christ as we call ourselves Christians, as we call ourselves little Christs. I pray that every day we would be taking one more step into becoming who you've called us to be. God, I pray that because we're here today, our hearts and our minds and our souls and our lives would be changed. Because we're here today, I pray that we would drink afresh from the water you've given us. God, I pray that because we're here today, we would be one step closer to you. God, I pray that at the end of this teaching time, we would know better who you are and better who it is that you've called us to be. I pray that for myself. Pray it for every person in this room, and I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So when I was a kid, um, I would skip school from time to time. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't a particularly good student. So I would skip school from time to time. And I had very permissive parents, so they would just, you know, whatever. And so um, one of the things that you learn pretty quickly if you're born before the internet age is that when you skip school and you stay home, there's not really a lot to do. So you can watch the people's court, not Judge Judy, but Judge Wapner, right? Um, that's right. That's how old I am. And, and, and you can watch The Price is Right. That was on there, right? And, and, and that was like kind of the highlight of the day. When you were at home, it was The Price is Right and The People's Court. And then it was just soap operas all day. And if you weren't watching the whole soap opera, you can't get into that. And so, and so I'd watch The Price is Right. And my favorite game on The Price is Right, absolute favorite game on The Price is Right was Plinko. You remember you got the ball and it's like bing, 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 down the... And it gets down and you get down and you're like, and you're at home and you're like, no, no, don't drop it there. You got to move it over this way and you got to move it over that way. But you know, it, without a fail, that thing would go all the way this way and all the way. That, and sometimes it would fall in the thousand dollar one and sometimes it would fall in the zero dollar one. And, and you just had this mind that if you dropped it in the right spot, you could get it in the right spot, but you couldn't tell how it was going to get down. It's an interesting problem. The only way that you can know how the Plinko ball, where you drop it, will get to the bottom is if you know how much it weighs and how, where you drop it from and how much acceleration it picks up and how much friction is on the board and how bouncy each one of those pegs are and what it's made of. And, and all of that, as it goes down, you have to predict how it's going to bounce off of each individual peg. And so, and so here we come to the problem of telling the future. You see, the problem with telling the future is that it's like Plinko is that there are a lot of events between now and the future, and every one of those events changes the course of the way we're going. And so we're bouncing this way, and then we hit a peg, and then we're bouncing that way, and then maybe we go way over here, and then way back over here. And if we're going to know where the peg's going to fall, we have to have perfect knowledge of everything that's going on in that system. And God, he makes a promise. And so here's the first thing I want you to see about God is that he is a promise maker. In Genesis 3, God is laying out the way it is between um, humans and the world. 
Um, interestingly enough, this section doesn't say that this is the punishment that God gives man for falling in the Garden of Eden. It doesn't say this is the curse of Adam and the curse of Eve because God doesn't curse Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve cursed themselves by having to leave the garden. God just sat down and told them, now that you've left the garden, here's what it's going to be like. Now that you've left the garden, here's the future that you've laid out for yourself. And he tells woman, um, through great pain, you're going to give kids, you're going to have kids. He says to woman, there's going to be a battle between you and the man about who's going to be in control of stuff. And you're going to want to um, override his desires for things. And he's going to want to override your desires for things. So he sets up the battle of the sexes. So that's great. And then, um, and then he tells man, he says, you're going to have to go out and work all the time. By the sweat of your brow, you're going to get food now. Everything's going to be tough. Nothing's going to work the way it's supposed to. That Murphy's Law is going to be in full effect now. You're always going to pick the wrong size screwdriver when you're having to put something together. It's just that's how it's going to work from now on because sin's broken the world. But he says to the serpent something really interesting. Now, what he says to the serpent becomes really important. In theology terms, we call this the proto-evangelium. It's the very first... Um, uh, um, example of the gospel given to Christ, and it happens right here in Genesis 3. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and woman. He's telling us to a snake. So he says that women are going to hate snakes, and we can pretty much say that's true, right? Most ladies hate snakes. That's mostly true. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. That means all the people are going to hate snakes too, which we do for the most part. Um, and it says, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, he's talking to a snake, but he's talking to a snake that is Satan, right? And he says, between you and Satan, between the offspring of man and woman, there's going to be enmity. That's for the snake. For this snake in specific, he says, he, he talks about one man, the offspring of woman. He says, the snake's going to bite his heel, and then, then some versions say, and he's going to crush your head. And it's God telling us right there in Genesis 3 that he has a plan for how sin is going to be defeated in the world. God makes a promise. And this promise happened at like at least 7,000 years ago. At least 7,000 years ago, God made this promise and he said, I have a, an idea, a way that this is going to work out. I have a plan and here's the promise. Here's what's going to happen. And then, and then 4,000 years later, right, Jesus comes to the cross, or 3,000 or 5,000, doesn't matter what time it was exactly, but Jesus comes to the cross, and this prophecy is fulfilled. Now think about how much knowledge God has to have to say, to say four or five or 6,000 years before an event, here's what's going to happen. Jesus is going to come, and he's going to step on the serpent's head. You see, you see, in order for that to happen, we had to go through uh, the Israelites. We had to go through Abraham. We had to go through Moses. We had to go through uh, the captivity. We had to go through the exodus. We had to go through the, the judges. We had to go through the king time. We had to go through all the prophets. We had to get to Malachi. We had to get to the end of the 400 years of silence. You had to go through all of those events. And you imagine this Plinko ball going for a 1,000 years. And then another thousand, and then another thousand, and five thousand years later, it's bing, 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 right to where God said it is. What you can know about your God is that He makes promises based on His knowledge. He knows every event before it happens. He knows every event that's going to happen in the world. He's already seen it. He already knows it. He already knows all the effects of it. 
He already knows all the causes of it. He knows everything that could happen, and he knows everything that will happen. Our God is omniscient. And praise God for it, because it means when he makes a promise, he knows the outcome of the promise. He can't be made a liar because he knows all truth. He can't be wrong because he knows exactly what's going to happen. And so when Jesus says, "Um, in my Father's house there are many rooms, if it wasn't true, I wouldn't say it. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and where I go, I'm going to come back and get you. He doesn't say that hoping it's going to be true one day. Have you ever made a promise to your kids? You kind of make a promise to your kids hoping that it's going to be true, right? Like, we're going to go to the park tomorrow, and there's a lot of ifs on that promise, right? If I wake up in a good mood. If you wake up in a good mood. If when it's time to get in the car, your shoes are on. If it's not raining. If, 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 if. We don't know all the ifs, and so when we make a promise, it's conditioned on a bunch of ifs that we don't know, we don't control. But when God makes a promise, he knows the answer to all these ifs. And so when God says that he has a plan to save the world, when God makes a promise that he's going to fix everything that's going on in the world, you can know that that promise is based on that he already knows the outcome of everything that's going to happen. And so you can rest assured in the truth and the faithfulness of your God. So God is a promise maker in Genesis 3. He gives us the proto-evangelium, but it goes on from there. He continues that promise in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, um, God has made that promise, knowing that that promise is coming to be. We've had a flood, and then we've had a tower of Babel, and then we've had a generation of people raised up um, worshiping pagan gods, not worshiping God. And in Genesis chapter 12, God looks down at the earth, and he does something remarkable. He picks one guy. He says, in all the world, there are probably you know, a couple of million people in the whole world. He looks down and he says, that guy, his name is Abram, and I choose him. Now get this, Abram came from a, a family that were pagan worshipers. They didn't worship God. So, pagan comes from, or, so Abraham comes from the wrong religion, and he's not particularly rich, and he's not particularly smart, he's not particularly beautiful, He's not particularly anything. He's just a guy. And God picked him and he said, Abram. And here's what he says to him. Here's what he says to him, which I love. He says, he says Abram, in Genesis chapter 12, he says this, and, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in your name, and, and sorry, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Get that promise. All the families of the earth, not may be blessed, not could be blessed. He says, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God continues his promise. He says his promise is first, right, is to reunite the, the relationship. He does that with the serpent and the snake. But here with Abraham, he says, I'm going to bless every family of the earth. He's continuing the promise of Jesus now a couple thousand years later in the life of Abraham. Abram at this time, Abraham pretty soon. And he's, he's promising in Abraham, he says, everybody in the world will be blessed through you. And we see that as a prophecy of Christ, right? Is it that, that how is everybody blessed through Abram? Well, it's not when, they're all, when you have Jews over here and all the Gentiles who can just you know, do whatever they want because it doesn't matter because they're not Jews, it's when Jesus throws open the promise to everybody. He says, salvation's not just for the Jews, but it's for everybody. 
It's when, it's when Peter is sitting there and the food comes down and he's supposed to eat it. And he says, Peter, take the message of the gospel, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, to, to everybody, because the gospel is open for everybody. And that sounds normal to us because almost everybody in this room is a Gentile. But in the time that Peter got that message, that was revolutionary. The idea that a religion would go beyond one race of people in the ancient Near East and in the Roman times was unheard of. The Romans had the Roman gods. The Greeks had the Greek gods. The Persians had the Persian gods. Every race of people had their own gods. For Jesus to come down and say, no, one God for everybody. All the nations of the earth are blessed through Abraham. Our God, who's a promise maker, continues that promise he doesn't forget no matter what we do, no matter which ball we bounce off of, no matter which peg we bounce off of, we bounce through history. Our God, who's a promise maker, is faithful. And that promise is heading right to where he said it is the entire time. I should go this way, right? Plinko goes down, but our promises go up, don't they? So I'm going to point that way. But that gravity doesn't work that way, so I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I didn't think this illustration through all the way, maybe. I should have got a Plinko board, right? That'd be awesome. We should do that for trunk or treat. Somebody do Plinko for trunk or treat. <laughs> oh, man. Isaiah 2. A promise expanded. So not only does God make promises, but those promises are good. And while he doesn't always give us the whole promise at once, right? And we, we hate that, don't we? Right? When God called me to ministry, he didn't give me the whole promise at once. He gave me a little bit. He said, you got to go to seminary. I'm like, but I don't want to go to seminary. I like, I like what I'm doing now. So you got to go to seminary. But seminary is expensive. you got to go anyway. Well, okay, fine. So I go to seminary, right? I don't get the whole promise. I just get that. Like, you're going to be in ministry. You need to go to seminary. That's all I get. Oh, we wish when God gives us our calling, right, that he would show us the whole picture all at once, don't we? Is it just me or does anybody else wish that? Raise your hand if you wish that. Whole picture at once, right? Here's what you're going to do for the next until you die, right? That'd be great. And then we wouldn't have to worry about it. We wouldn't even have to pray. It'd be great. We just follow the path until we die. But you know what? We can't even follow the path that's one step in front of us. So how can God trust us to give us the whole path that's a million miles ahead? Wouldn't we run ahead? Wouldn't we? If God told me, hey, here's what's going to happen. You're going to move to, to Virginia. Like, but God, I've never been to Virginia. I'd say, okay, well, I'm supposed to be in Virginia. I would have moved to Virginia. And I would have missed Boise, and I would have missed Arkansas, and I would have missed Missouri and the lessons that I had there. I would have run right ahead because I'm a goofball and I do stuff like that. And I know I'm the only one in this room who runs ahead of God. But in Isaiah 2, what we see is God expanding that promise. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, we're going to skip verse 3, but we're going to read verse 4 as well, and here's what it says. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the highest of the mountains uh, and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. That's Jesus. It shall come to pass Jesus. That's, that's what it should say. Right? We read the Old Testament with New Testament eyes. When we read that passage, it is clearly talking about establishing the name of Jesus. And all the nations are going to flow to it. In verse 4, it tells us something that hasn't happened yet, but we're waiting for. And it says this, He shall judge between the nations, and he shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. One of my favorite promises in the Bible Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war any more. Don't you hear from that a promise that hasn't been fulfilled yet? We haven't experienced that, have we? 
I love the military. My dad was in the Navy, and I loved my time as a Navy brat. I loved living on the base and the freedom that that gave me. I loved um, the Marines. I remember the first time I really saw a Marine, like the first time that I, like, I, I saw it. You know, you see things in life, but then you really see them. You know what I'm talking about? Like things pass you when you're a kid. You'll be driving by stuff. It won't matter. But then when you get your license, like you start to notice what the street names are. I remember the first time that that way I saw a Marine. And I was getting my haircut as a kid, and I was in the base haircut place. And this Marine comes in, and he has got just the raddest high and tight you've ever seen. And I have this, and my mom likes this, and I say, I want my haircut like that. I want to look like that Marine. And my dad was like, fine, cut it like a high and tight. And my mom probably cried and cried because I'm, you know, 10, and I'm coming home with just no hair, you know, because Marine cut. I loved it. And then from there I went to the, I got the flat top, right, because that was a thing. It was awesome, and I loved it. I love the military um, for all those good and patriotic reasons, but, man, you know what I'd love more is to not have them. I'd love more to not need it. I love that the Newport News Shipyards gives us jobs, but I'd love it more if they didn't have to, if we didn't need warships, if we didn't need submarines, if we didn't need nuclear missiles and Marines and Army people. I'd love it more if we lived in a world where everybody just did what was right, if everybody just followed God. I'd love it more if we lived in a world where there was peace. And, and, and what I love is that God promises us peace. We see this promise of peace here. It says that they'll take their swords, their weapons of war, and they'll beat them into plowshares to make food to give to people so there won't be hunger anymore, right? Instead of using our resources to fight each other, we'll use our resources to love each other. And it would be naive of us to pretend that we live in that world now, right? We have to have an army and we have to have a navy because if we don't, people would invade us and they would take what's ours and they would take away our freedom. Our world would be worse if we didn't. But man, it would be better if we didn't need it. In Revelation, um, God gives us a picture of heaven, and what he says is that, and then thro- flowing from the throne of God, there was a river that went out through the street, and the street was on both sides, and I love that. So there's a river that goes down the middle of a street, which I just love, right? So you, you got the street, and apparently it's made of gold, and down the middle of it, there's a river, which I think is really weird to have a river right down the middle of your street, but that's how heaven is. And so there's a river going down the street, and then on both sides of the river, it says that there's a tree of life, right, growing on both sides of the river. So I'm just imagining this tree, like the mangroves, right, in the swamp that grow with those, like, long um, uh, 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 roots, right, and they grow up in these arches. I just imagine it like that. I don't know what it actually looks like, but that's how I see it in my head. And then the Bible says that the leaves of the tree uh, of, the, of life, it says it produces fruit in 12 seasons, and the leaves of the tree were given to the nations for healing. We're given to the nations for healing. So when the time, in the thousand years, when Jesus comes back and he reigns this world like, like he's supposed to, when he's the king of all things in a real physical way, it says we eat the leaves of the tree of life for healing. It means our nations don't fight against each other. It means there is no war. And man, wouldn't that be great? I mean, we spent, uh, our budget is roughly, roughly a third military and a third um, different kinds of social programs and then a third, like, money that we need to actually run stuff. Wouldn't it be great if that third military could just go into feeding people? What I love about it is two things. One is that the nations don't fight against each other, but two, that there are still nations. Have you thought of that? That in heaven there are still nations? Like, in heaven, 
you're not going to be an American in the way we're American now, right? But you're still going to be who you are. Your identity isn't lost. The things that matter to you in this world still exist when God rules. He doesn't come to just take it and say, okay, this is all heaven now. We're just going to put it all in a blender. The things that make you you are still there. The things that make your culture your culture are still there. It's one of the things I love about church is that right now you have this church that worships the way we do. And if you go down the road, you're going to find a different church and they're going to worship differently. And if you go down the road, you're going to, a little more, you're going to find another different church and they're going to worship a little differently. And all of those things are pleasing to God. We don't have to fight about our differences because God doesn't, they don't bother him. The fact that we worship God the way we should worship God and somebody else worships God differently is awesome to God. Every summer now, last summer and this summer, and I hope for the next summers to come, I've been going to Jamaica to do a mission trip. We go over to Mamby Baptist Church and we work in Riverton Meadows, which is a church built right on a dump, and we do ministry. We run a little Sunday school. We sweat a lot. We play with the kids. It's big fun. It's good ministry. When I went to Mamby Baptist Church the first time, um, the guy said, okay, you're preaching tomorrow, because that's how they do it there. You're preaching tomorrow. I was like, okay, well, I hadn't planned on that, but I'll, I guess I'm staying up tonight to write a sermon. And so I write a sermon, and I get up and I preach, because I thought it was a pretty big deal. So I'm getting up, and I'm preaching, and I'm doing all my stuff, and I've got my things, and I'm doing my little sermon. And I, I get done with my sermon. They also say, amen. They sing a song. I sit down. And then you know what happened? He said, all right, now this guy's going to preach. And he got up, and he preached. And then this guy was going to preach, and he got whole sermon that had nothing to do with mine. There were three separate sermons by three separate guys. And I thought to myself, this wouldn't fly at my church. <laughs> right? Like if I got done, I said amen, and then Chuck came up here and says, hey, I got a sermon for you now. Y'all walking out. You're like, Chipotle's waiting. I'm hungry. You can't keep us until Chick-fil-A opens. That's not okay, right? Be great to eat Chick-fil-A when you got out of church, though. But praise God, they're closed on Sunday. I have mixed feelings on that because I like Chick-fil-A. I love the diversity. I love that, that our church is like this and the Jamaican church is like that and that we do it this way and they do it that way. And if you go to um, Mexico, they do it their own way. And if you go to every other country, they do it their own way. It tells us something important about our God, doesn't it? The infinite God can't be worshipped by one finite congregation. We don't have the only right way to do it. I like to tell people, um, we're going to be a church that preaches God, and we're going to be a great church. We're not the only church in town. I doubt we're even the best church in town, truth be told. We're just the church that's following God the way we're supposed to do it. And that's who I want to be as a church, right? Because our God deserves to be worshipped in the diversity of who He is. He deserves to be worshipped with a thousand voices and a thousand styles and a thousand different um, congregations. He deserves all that. We're going to do it the best we know how here, but if somebody else does it a little different, we're okay with that, right? And in heaven, all the people who do it differently, we don't throw rocks at each other anymore. We don't throw rocks at the Methodists and the Presbyterians. We don't say mean things to the Charismatics and the Pentecostals. We just get along, right? We just, we just get it. It's nobody's, nobody is in heaven saying, we're the only way to get here anymore, now they're saying, oh, man, look at all these people who all worship the truth. And, and the, the charismatics get stuff right that we get wrong. I believe that. If I knew what it was, I'd change, but I don't. They're right about some stuff that I'm wrong about. And the Methodists are right about some stuff that I'm wrong about, too. And I wish I knew what it was because we would change. And we're right about some stuff that they're wrong about. And if they knew what it was, they'd change, too, because everybody's just doing the best they can. But in heaven, 
all of that diversity comes together and we eat the leaves of the tree of life for the healing of the nations. The diversity stays, but the animosity goes away. We just say it's okay to be different. And man, if that's not a picture that, that really gets your goosebumps up, I don't know what will, because that's good. That's good. So a promise continued, and then a promise in the flesh. John chapter 3, 16, the most memorized verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world, get this, he kept his promise. He gave his only son, that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And then check out verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus did not come here to judge you. Jesus didn't come here to make you feel bad about who you are. Right? The message of Jesus is peace on earth and what? Good will towards man. God isn't mad at you. That's the message of Christmas. God's not angry in heaven waiting for you to sin so he can smash you. He loves you. He says, peace on earth and goodwill towards man. He says, I love humans, for God so loved the world. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's the message of Easter. And the message of Easter is that our God, the Father, made a promise and he kept it through Abraham, and he kept it through Moses, and he kept it through the judges, and he kept it through David, and he kept it through Solomon. And, and the, when all the kings went sideways, right, when the kingdom of Israel split, he kept it through the prophets, and even up to the prophet Malachi, and then through 400 years of silence, he kept his promise. And when the time was right, and the fullness of time, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish promise kept and then the promise fulfilled we read about it in acts chapter 2 it says this this jesus this jesus god raised up and on that we are all of that we are all witnesses you are a witness of the resurrection of christ it's why you're a believer you go into this world saying, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. You want to know what the gospel is? I say it so simple. Here it is. God changed my life. That's the good news for me. And the good news for you is that he can change yours too. God changed my life and he can change yours too. And he promises to be that kind of God. And when he promises to do it, it's not like when your mom promises that she'll take you to get a puppy tomorrow, right? It's not that that promise isn't going to be kept and you know it. It's the promise of God who knows the future. God can't lie because he knows what's going to happen. He can't be made wrong. So God is omniscient. God is faithful. God is good. And your takeaway from this, and I want you to see this, if God knows everything, if God knows everything, know this about your salvation, that God knew who you were when he saved you. He knew what you did when he saved you. He knew what you were doing when he saved you. And he knew what you will do when he saved you. See, if God could see the future to when Jesus was born and died, he can see into the future to when you're born and when you die. And so many Christians walk around feeling guilty all the time. We walk around feeling the weight of our sins all the time. And God's message for you is quite simple. It says he forgave those sins. The message of the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. This is talking about your sins. The war with sin is over. Jesus won it. 
right? So when we continue to sin, that's just a choice we make. We're not bound to those sins anymore. Our God is a chain breaker, right? That was a popular song last year. And so our God was a chain breaker. He does that. He breaks our chains so that you're not bound to sin anymore. We just choose it. But he says that your guilt for the, even those choices, it doesn't carry with you anymore. That the God who loves you loves you just like you are. And he wants you to stop sinning. That's true. Don't hear me wrong. God wants you to not sin anymore. But he doesn't hold your sins against you. It's not like when you sin, he's going to be like, well, I didn't see that coming. Right? When you fall, when you're, when you're at home at night and you think a mean thought about somebody else in the church, God's not going to be like, I can't believe you thought that. What a jerk. I can't save you anymore. Right? When, you, when you're walking down the street and you see somebody of the opposite gender or the same gender and you have the wrong kind of thought about it, right? God doesn't say, whoa, what a gross thought. You're disqualified now. He didn't say that. Because when he saved you, he knew what it was that you had done. He knew, that it, knew what it was that you were doing, and he knew what you would do. Because God, the Father, the creator of all things, is omniscient, all-knowing. We can know that the promises that he made to us, he'll be faithful to complete them, to get them all the way. And he knows exactly where that Plinko ball is going to fall. And you know where it falls? Heaven grace and forgiveness every single time. The, the promise works every time you try it. So I'm here and I'm going to give you this and then we're going to be done. If you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus, if you've never began a relationship with Jesus, if you've never said to God, your will, not mine, if you've never said to God, today I'm giving you everything because that's what it costs, everything. He doesn't like it when you hold back. You see, Jesus says, Jesus says he stands at the door and he knocks. And whoever opens the door, he comes into the house. But you know what the problem is? We often think that he's going to come into the house and he's going to stand in the living room and he's just going to stay there, but he doesn't. He's kind of a nosy house guest. Once you let him into the living room, he goes over to the kitchen and he knocks on that door. What's going on in there? He looks at the bedroom and he knocks on that door. He looks in that one closet that all of you have. What's in here? You're like, don't open it, Jesus. He says, no, I want to see what's in here. He wants to open every door. God asks to invade every room of your house. And sometimes when we make a relationship with God, we think we can just give him through the front door and let him sit on the couch and then he'll go home. That's just not how it works. And if you haven't started a relationship with Jesus, if you haven't given your life over to Christ, I want to encourage you to make today your day doesn't matter how long you've been in this church. It doesn't matter how many sermons you've sat through. You could have been here for 150 years and you could have heard every sermon on every verse in the Bible. If you haven't given your heart to God, it just doesn't matter. The promise of God is a conditional one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever shall believe. There's your condition. Whosoever shall believe. You have to believe to get the promise. Shall not perish but have everlasting life so that we can have hope of a life with meaning beyond this one. If that's you, I'd love to talk to you. Um, uh, that said, I don't exactly know how y'all end services. I'm going to pray, and I bet the band's going to come back up. Is that going to happen? And then, I'm, and, then, and then, so here's how I do it. I'm going to pray. The band's going to come back up, and then I'm going to give a prayer for us as we get ready to go, a benediction. Does that make sense? That's how I do it. That's how we're going to do it. So, I'm going to pray. God, thank you for bringing us here today and giving us a chance to talk about your word. God, we thank you for the role of the Father, the creator of all things, 
the, the Father who ordained this world to be the way it is, the God who, um, knowing all things, chose to create us, to give us life and to give us breath. God, we thank you for being a God who's worthy of our worship. God, I pray uh, that here today we would be a room full of people who have trusted you for salvation, that none of us would hold back. God, I pray that for any that are in this room that haven't, that today they would give their heart over. But God, for those of us who have given our heart over, God, we pray that because we know that you're an all-knowing God, we would know that our sins are forgiven in an all-knowing way, that we don't have to carry around guilt and shame because the promises that you make, we see them travel through history. And so the promise you make to us to forgive us and to get us into heaven is a promise that you're able to keep. God, I thank you for being a God who's so big and so diverse and so worthy of our worship. I pray for not only our church this morning, God, I pray that all the churches in this peninsula will be having an amazing time. God, I pray your Holy Spirit would be on them as well as us. God, I pray for revival in this area. God, I pray for new truth to spring forward, not just from our church, but from all the churches. That we would reach new people. That we would find new souls to talk to. God, I pray that we would become a church of invitation. Not just ours, but all of them. That we would all see new people come to God. I pray that we would see full nurseries. God, I pray that we would see full Sunday school classes. God, I pray that uh, for us and for all the churches. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.